Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 146. Well, just ahead, what home flipper open door technologies, what do they plan to do with 17,000 unsold homes? And what's wrong with Beyond Meat? And a huge debate, an answer to a question, can Oshkosh convert gas-powered postal trucks to electric power? Well, you'll be surprised what Oshkosh CEO John Pfeiffer tells us in an exclusive interview. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With Era, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to the Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. But hit the subscribe button. That way you'll make sure you catch every show. And the drill down is also brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We're going to explain the business stories behind some stocks on the move and to help me do so, as always... Executive producer, Isaac Webster. Isaac, how are you? Hello, Corey. How are you? Welcome back from your international travels. Thank you. I'm COVID-free so, as of as of a couple of days ago. <laughs> you you had COVID again? No, no, no. You have to get tested. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Knock on wood. Who knows? There were people. Uh, yeah. There were, but on the flight back to LA, I got to mention this because it's really this really unnerved me. Tell people I, where you were. Grenada, the island of Grenada. Beautiful island. So right off the coast of Venezuela. But on the flight home, uh, there were all these people that were sort of being really relaxed about their masks. This couple across the aisle from me on the flight just basically refused to wear their masks. And then one guy was coughing. That stuff makes me crazy. It was driving me insane. I, I ended up having to get stewardesses involved. The stewardesses weren't doing anything at the time. I'll tell you, it really shook me up. It's really frustrating. It's not like, you know, there's still a lot of people dying out there. It's not over. Anyway, I just had to get that out there. That's my, uh, that's my complaint of the week. I'll, ha- I'll come like up with you already more. complained about it. Oh, Sounds I have. Like you oh, I have. Out there. oh, don't think I didn't email the airline, blah, blah, blah. I did the whole thing. So be careful out there still. That's my, that's my, the more you know, we need that little NBC thing. No, we don't. Why Thank not? Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Um, no, I'm kidding. Wow. I'm kidding. You let's can call me down some stocks. Yeah, 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 let's do it. Uh, Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat trades under BYND. Shares have dropped over 67% in a year. 
To understand this decline in Beyond Meat shares, go back to the end of July 2019 when they reached a high of just over $234. $234. Now, BYND shares are trading at $45. Yeah, uh, and yet, uh, as you mentioned, they, they dropped quite a bit and quite a bit recently. recently yeah. After a week quarter reported uh, just recently, net revenues were down. This must be a growth company, a fantastic growing business, Beyond Meat, right? Yeah. Revenues for the quarter were $101 million. That's down 1% over the previous year. Yeah. And it's supposed to have down, you're not, you're supposed to have giant gains with a stock with this kind of valuation. You're, yeah. you know, if the, if the bullish thesis for this business is that it will grow, mm-hmm. it should be growing. Yeah. Call me crazy. And uh, gross profits, $14.2 million, a gross profit margin of, 14%, but of course, losses, lots of losses for the year. This, of course, was the fourth quarter they were reporting. So for the year, we can get a sense of what they did. They had a negative margin. Their earnings, their losses were 40%, or you know, 39%. So yeah, so every $10 of sales cost the company 14 bucks. That is just so painful. And I got to mention, I'm one of those every $10 of sales. And I think I mentioned that every show we talk about Beyond Meat. Yeah, you do. And, and surprise, and, it's surprising to me every time they just haven't dug themselves out hey, of this hole. I, 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 the last 20 years I figured out I should buy, when companies are selling things for less than they cost, I should probably buy them. <laughs> so, so there They're you not are, discounted where I live less. though. Beyond, listen, I mean. They are discounted. Meat. They're losing money on every sale. <laughs> every $10 of food you buy costs them 14 bucks to make. So that, that's, that is a challenged business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that, you know, I, I listened to the conference call. I read some of the analyst reports. I read the, the, the press release. I don't model this company, but I looked at a, a model of this company. It doesn't look great. I was shocked when I got to the balance sheet and looked at the inventory. Inventory went, it basically doubled in the last year to $241 million. So again, revenues are down. Inventory has doubled. Mm-hmm. They've got about eight or nine months worth of inventory. Now, I don't know if it's finished goods, which is to say food that's rotting on the shelf. I don't know what, it, I, don't, I don't know what they could have an in inventory. Uh, they're $241 million of inventory and $100 million in sales. That, that's just shocking to me. Uh, it didn't get much attention on the conference call. The analysts uh, don't often get to the, uh, the balance sheet by the time they start the conference call. They get the press release and bam, they're on the phone. So they're rushing through to complete their models and update their, their, their income statements. They did get one question about inventory on the conference call. Again, this is a shocking thing, right? Mm-hmm. Nine, eight, nine months of inventory sitting on the shelves of a business that is shrinking. Philip Hardin, the CEO, had this to say, the CFO, I should say, had this to say about their inventory. We do have some, some expensive inventory. Um, we will sell, uh, sell that, and then there is additional pressure from the new product launch on gross margin. So uh, we do anticipate Q1 will get worse and then uh, we should get better throughout the year, I think particularly in the second half as we uh, already have a line of sight to a more uh, cost-effective way to, to manufacture the product. So yeah, as bad as things were gross margin-wise in Q1, they're gonna get worse. Uh, now they're saying second half will be great. The second half things will be more cost-effective. I don't, I don't get that. And here's the other thing. If the inventory is already in existence, I, I don't understand. This is, this is problem, problematic for this company, again, that is not growing. 
and gross margins are contracting and yes, on their way to getting worse. I'm old enough to remember when this was the buzziest of buzz on Wall Street. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was nine months ago. <laughs> As you pointed out, I'm old <laughs> enough to remember that shit too. Uh, somebody better step up because I, uh, I like my Beyond Meat. I like to eat it. So we'll see what happens there. Corey, what's, that, what's your next drill down? Let's look at Open Door. Open Door Technologies. Uh, trades under Open, O-P-E-N. Shares have dropped 72%. Technologies. Technologies, yeah. please. It's a tech company. Retail tech. Sure it is. I'm not retail sure tech. Is. Real estate tech. Every company's a tech company. <laughs> That's true. We're a tech company. Uh, open shares. Uh, O-P-E-N. Shares have dropped 72% in a year. Trading just about $8 today, a far cry from a high of $34 back in February of last year, 2021. 34 to 8. That's yeah. rough. Uh, 72% in the last year. That's rough. Mm. This company, as you mentioned, is indeed a, 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 a company that helps people buy and sell homes. Home flipper. But the, but they have taken, the, taken on the business of buying them and selling them themselves, mm-hmm. stepping in there and making a market. Um, and they've bought a lot of them. So they reported a quarter that was that was big. Uh, revenues up, you know, you mentioned the stock down 72% in a year. Mm-hmm. Well, the revenues were up uh, 1,400% in a year, kind of because they have changed that business, $3.8 billion. They sold uh, uh, almost 10,000 homes, 9,794 homes. Again, that's up about 1,000% from, uh, from the year ago quarter. Well, those Isaac, are good numbers. Well, is it? You tell me. Is selling a house a good thing? It is. Okay. If you could, could you sell your house? Like, let's say in the next hour, if you had to, I would, I would bet not. No. In an hour. I'll buy it. I'll, I've been to your house once. I'll buy it right now. Okay. Well then look, I sold. Yeah. Done. Great. Where's the Did check? Did I mention the price I'm paying you? <laughs> I'll give you $10,000 for your house. Pass. I'll give you a hundred thousand dollars for your house. Pass. Oh wait, 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 now you now you're getting you're adding you're adding a different qualification here. Now you're <laughs> saying price matters. So the fact that they sold 9,800 homes, big deal, right? Okay. The question is, what do they make? And they they also bought 9,700 homes, so they sold nearly as many as as they purchased in the quarter. Uh, but their inventory is now up to 17,009 homes. They say those homes are worth 6.1 billion dollars, um, but their gross profits. Their gross profit margin has, I'll say, collapsed. So their gross profits uh, were $39 million a year ago. And now with this new business, $272 million. But their gross margin has gone from 15% to 7%. Mm. So it's down more than 50% in a year. Uh, those, those numbers are collapsing. So again. Why, Why are they collapsing? Great question. Because they're in a hurry to sell houses. Maybe the market isn't as good as they say it, it was going to be, or as they say it's going to be. Um, Carrie Wheeler, well, I'm not going to say she was defensive or not defensive. Why don't you listen to what the CFO, Carrie Wheeler, had to say about what's going on. In the, and what uh, she won't say the margins are down. She says margin trajectory. Here she is on the margin trajectory for Open Door. So if we step back, we think about the margin trajectory for 2021 and kind of what drove that trajectory. We've been very explicit that we had two large but temporary factors that were driving excess margins in the first half of the year. One was we came into the year with essentially no inventory, 
having kind of sold their inventory during COVID and rebuilding that back up. That was really good for margins. Uh, and we knew it would dissipate throughout the course of the year, and it has, so it's kind of back to normal. We're going to fix the our inventory down. And the second part of that was the fact that as we came, you know, turning on our market, we came into the first part of the year, we deliberately made some conservative underwriting decisions relative to what was at that time very, very high HPA. And that flowed through into resales, into realized margins, again, that was relatively excessive relative to our 4 to 6% for the guardrail. So it wasn't that we missed on gross margin. It's like we just saw the trajectory we called for all year long. So the first thing you do, blame COVID. Always. Always I, blame did, COVID. Didn't I just blame COVID earlier in the show? COVID. Yeah. Everything's because of COVID. Yeah, it really is. Uh, so I, I thought house prices went through the roof during COVID. I thought, as I recall, inventories were very uh, difficult to grow during COVID. Yeah. Uh. So building that back, I don't know. They're blaming COVID. Kids must be on lunch break from school. Two of them have called me in the last 10 seconds. All right. In any case, uh, blaming COVID. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll see. All I know is that the numbers are, are getting worse. The gross margins getting worse. The stock price reflecting that worsening for open door. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I thought it was too much Debbie Downer so far on the show. So let's look at a real positive story from our friends in Seattle, J.W. Nordstrom. Nordstrom trades under JWN. Shares jumped 38% today, but they have dropped 28% a year and have been steadily declining since touching 80 bucks back in 2015. But yeah, there is uh, something of a climb back, right? Yeah, they, they reported a, a super strong quarter, you know, Let's think about what has happened in this quarter, right? We've seen complaints about or in the fourth quarter. We saw uh, uh, inflation, uh, both in wages. Yes, that's a good thing, I suppose, if you're a worker, which we are. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, it's a bad thing if you're a, a, a supplier of goods when you got to pay more for it. Um, but nonetheless, we saw really strong revenue growth in this company, 23% revenue growth over the last year, although down 1% from uh, 2019. Pre-COVID, right? But uh, digital sales, fantastic. Uh, digital sales for this company, online sales, 23%. Geographically interesting, uh, Nordstrom sales in southern markets, which they include Southern California. I guess if you're in Seattle, you would consider Southern California Southern. Uh, right. Outperforming northern markets by about 7 percentage points. Suburban stores, stronger than urban stores in the fourth quarter. But the big story here to me was Nordstrom Rack. You may or may not recall, I think we did discuss on the show, that last quarter, Nordstrom Rack uh, had all, just a lousy quarter mm -hmm. um, CEO. You know, lots of, lots of issues CEO complaining about it. But Nordstrom Rack sales up 23% year over year, although down 5% from 2019. So really big growth all of a sudden. Just 13 weeks ago, they were talking about how bad it was. And indeed, the stock sold off big. And they'd hired an investment bank. They hired Alex Partners to review options. Of course, that means selling the business. But this quarter... Well, last quarter, Eric Nordstrom, the CEO, said he was not satisfied at all about those Nordstrom Rack numbers. This quarter, he's very excited. He's taken all the credit saying Nordstrom Rack was better, and it's because of us. It's because of our internal efforts. Here is Eric Nordstrom. It's really about our internal efforts. And, uh, you know, we 
we continue to see kind of slow, steady, consistent progress quarter to quarter, and we have uh, continued signs uh, that that's occurring. Uh, we have a lot of effort going on in our rack business, and uh, while we saw some improvement last quarter, uh, you know, we have a ways to go, and uh, we're hard at work on that, and we, we like our plans uh, and believe there's, there's opportunity for continued improvement there. So to me, the question is, are they still trying to sell this thing? Are they putting lipstick on the pig? Are they putting up some good results in some way to make this thing look a little bit better now that they've got an investment bank involved? Or is it off the table? That certainly wasn't answered uh, from their comments, from their interviews, from uh, other aspects of, of the conference call and so on. But uh, I think it's one to keep an eye on because you know they certainly control these results. If this thing's on the block and they're able to jack the numbers for a little bit, uh, it's interesting. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk to a company uh, very much in the headlines, not uh, the headlines of Ukraine and so on, but uh, in, the, in the headlines about uh, what's going on with the U.S. Postal Fleet. When that contract went to Oshkosh, a company based in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, maybe some eyes uh, looked askant at this, but it's an interesting company. And a company, uh, as the debate as to how electric the postal fleet can be, Oshkosh CEO John Pfeiffer stepping right up to that challenge. Some interesting comments here on the drill down about the potential electrification of the postal fleet right after this. The drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by John Pfeiffer. He's the CEO of Oshkosh, not the maker of overalls. Although when I was a kid, that was a thing. Uh, uh, but John, uh, joining us from uh, uh, the, the warmth of Wisconsin in the middle of the winter, uh, we're glad to have you. Your, yours is a, a, a fascinating company because I think people don't, uh, even when they know a little bit of the company, they don't recognize how many products around us, uh, how many, you know, we, we drive down the street, we, we, you know, pass any kind of construction site or anything. We're probably seeing a lot of Oshkosh equipment at work. Yeah, by the way, it's del I'm delighted to be here, Corey, and you're absolutely right. It is almost impossible for somebody to leave their home and not uh, see one of our pieces of equipment or specialty vehicles operating. You know, what, really what we do when you, when you boil it down, we've got a great culture in our company, and the culture is rooted in the purpose, and we have a very powerful purpose. I like to talk about why we do what we do. Uh, more than specifically what we do, because that's what's really interesting. And we serve um, people in our communities who are doing the most difficult work that there is to do. Uh, we call them everyday heroes. And I'm talking about soldiers. I'm talking about firefighters. I'm talking about people that work at great height in construction, people who work in environmental services. We compete in about a dozen end markets, and they're all tough jobs. And it's our it's our um, our whole purpose in life is to allow these people in those jobs to do their work more and more productively, easily, easy and efficient, and safely. We say every soldier, every firefighter, we want to bring them home to their family uh, every chance that they get to come home. 
And that's a powerful purpose, and, and, and it drives uh, 15,000 of us that work in our company uh, to really continue to innovate and, and get better at what we do because we know those people are so important to our communities. I thought we'd focus maybe a little bit on, on um, some of the uh, – I want get, to get to the military, and I want to talk about uh, that third of your business that is military uh, defense-related business. Um, but let's talk about the, the other stuff um, under a lot of brands not called Oshkosh. Um, uh, and, and in your, in your 10 K filing, I found myself spending a lot of time on Google saying, what the hell is an access device? And what, what <laughs> you know, what is an access? Device? Is that a door key? No, it's a, it's a, it's a, one of those lifty things that, you know, we, we call them, uh, I don't know, cherry pickers, right? Where, where yeah. a workman gets up in a, in a, in a bin and gets elevated to the level where they need to do their work, or you go to your Costco or, or Sam's club and they've got the pallets up. Uh, above where you're shopping and they bring right. the device down the, the aisle and get up there and, and bring those things down. Yep. Yeah. Another name that we call it is aerial work platform. Right. So, right. and this is, this, these are some of the machines. This is our biggest business, by the way. Um, it, it's under the brand JLG. And if you're in construction, JLG is almost a household name. He, all of us in our communities, anyone listening sees a piece of JLG equipment almost every time they leave their house. They're all over the place. They're in sports arenas. They're on construction sites. They're in manufacturing operations. They're in distribution operations. Um, they're cream and orange colored um, um, aerial work platforms that allow people to work at height or allow operators to move materials at height. Uh, for example, on a residential construction site, you see uh, some of those um, telehandler products a lot. Um, that, so that's uh, it's, it's one of the biggest forms of construction equipment. And it's how uh, we allow productivity to happen uh, in a variety of places where people have to work uh, uh, more than just four feet off the ground. When you've got to go to 150 feet, we allow you to do it efficiently and productively and most importantly, safely. So uh, what are the drivers of that business? What makes that business go? Uh, obviously, you, you know, you talk about the culture of the company and you talk about your ability to manufacture stuff and, 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 uh, um, you know, keep people making the best products they can. Let's take that for a given. I know that's not a given, but let's take it as a given. What are the things that drive that business, make it do well? What are the things that, that slow that business down? Well, from a macro standpoint, uh, it's driven by um, most fundamentally by non-residential construction, uh, but also somewhat by residential construction. Because construct, now construction is not the only end market that we sell the equipment into. That equipment goes into a lot of different maintenance applications. Um, it goes into a lot of uh, um, applications that are continuing to be developed uh, and, and, and um, discovered right now. But it's primarily non-residential construction that drives the macro industry. What drives our business is really innovation. Almost every business that we're in, we're an innovation company, we're a technology company. Of course, we're an industrial company, but we're as much about technology as we are about industrial products. And we apply uh, um, automation technology as an example, or electrification to these products. We have fully electrified aerial work platforms for indoor applications where you want perfectly silent, clean equipment. Um, we have automation that is, or autonomy that is deployed to a piece of equipment so it self-levels itself, for example, on a construction site. This is all innovation that's helping to drive better productivity 
as well as even better safety when, when you look at how the equipment is deployed. So for us, innovation drives our demand at a macro level, of course, economic activity and things like non-residential and residential construction drive the macro industry forward. So, so you say innovation drives demand. I, 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 could I paraphrase? I won't paraphrase that to planned obsolescence, but maybe I can go to you've had new features and your customers yeah. want to have them. Yeah, we, we're constantly uh, innovating and, and, and adding new features. Um, uh, that, that's what we've always done. It's what we've done since the beginning of the JLG brand, which is over 50 years old. Um, applying both safety innovation as well as productivity innovation to the product. Um, it's why we're the leader in the industry. It's why we're number one in, in, in that end market. Uh, when a construction worker wants to work on a piece of equipment, they want the safest, most innovative, most intuitive to operate machine. Because when you've got an operator who's working 150 feet in the air, uh, it sounds easy to say as I sit here and say working 150 feet in the air. When you put yourself into a piece of equipment and you're actually up at 150 feet in the air, it's very intimidating. Let's call so it we want to make sure yeah. that that operator is not focused on anything other than the work they're up there to do. We want them to be 100% confident in the safety and 100% confident in how easy it is to use the equipment. So they just have to worry about what they're up there to do. And that's why they'll select our equipment because we provide those innovations constantly as we, um, as we continue uh, developing the product. Can you explain to me how the channel works for you, how um, sellers and resellers down the chain, you talk about a little bit and it's in your financial filings about uh, extending credit to some customers, but it's not clear to me sort of how that process works and how many people down the chain, if there are dealers and how those dealers operate and what they're, what they're dealing. Well, in the, if you look at the aerial work platform business or the access equipment market, it's different for, for all of our big segments, but I'll talk about access equipment. Essentially, 95% of the equipment uh, goes into the rental industry. So the rental industry would be characterized by United Rentals or Sunbelt Rentals as the right. big national players. But there's also thousands of independent rental companies. And the equipment is typically rented to construction companies, to hospitals, to industrial uh, sites, to manufacturing locations. And the reason that it goes out on rent is because there is a, a wide variety of equipment for different use cases. And so the users, the users of the equipment like, say, a 60-foot boom for one job, but then they want a telehandler for another job or they want a scissor lift for another job. So they're constantly changing the type of equipment they need based upon the jobs that they have to do. And that's why the rental industry has become the primary channel for this equipment because there's there's so much need to um, uh, use different equipment uh, by the by the end user customer base. And so, are you selling construction companies? So, are you selling to the rental companies? Like the yes, we sell the equipment to the rental companies. Mm -hmm. And right? and what what degree of financing is involved in that? Oh, it depends on the customer. I mean, we've got customers that have their own banking relationships. We have customers that uh, that have term just standard terms with us. We have customers that operate on lines of credit. It really depends on the customer. There's there's not one method that that's used in terms of the financing. I, I would imagine managing that risk is 
you know, and, and, and it's been really tricky over the last year, especially because you had probably had some customers go under over the course of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, you know, our customer base has held up quite well, re remarkably, uh, during the downturn, and uh, um, uh, so we haven't had uh, we haven't had very much uh, bad debt at all that that's materialized. Um, we of course allow our customers to draw back on what they're receiving if, if they've got cash flow issues so that they can get caught up. Um, but we really haven't had too many problems with, uh, with customers um, defaulting. We, we really haven't, surprisingly. And, and, and that persists uh, even as a, as a government relief and, and aid to companies has kind of uh, uh, petered off. I'm sure that, yeah. And I'm sure that that helped in the, in the depths of the downturn. You know, when, we, when COVID first happened two years ago, the industry, our industry, the, the access equipment industry dropped 60% overnight, which is a catastrophic drop for yeah. uh, the industry to, to absorb. Now, that's because rental companies were stopping uh, receipt of equipment because they knew they had to conserve cash. So that's one way that we helped the industry recover. And we didn't see a lot of uh, our, our rental companies go bankrupt because we we saw shipments drop dramatically. So we were able to kind of help absorb the, um, the, the impact of the downturn. Now it's come back just as fast as it, as it came down. I do believe that some of the support that, uh, uh, that happened from the government during the pandemic helped some of our customers, especially some of the independent rental operators. Um, uh, but we have not, you know, now the industry's back up, the, the rental rates, you know, we talk about equipment utilization rates. Equipment utilization rates are high again. That means rental companies are doing well when their equipment is utilization rate is high. It means they're doing well. Yeah, they're 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 putting it near me. They're putting it on some new undergrounding power lines or something. And I yeah. went by right. probably about fifteen of right. your of your vehicles in right. about a three block stretch around the corner from my home. It's it was perfect prep for this interview. Yeah, good. But you, you see that work picking up all over the place. And I, I would imagine also that, you know, you mentioned the telehandler. Um, well, I suppose it could be used in telecommunications. Telehandler is short for telescoping handler. Yeah. Um, and that, that the um, retail aspect of that, those are, the, those are those, again, those forklifts that kind of go vertical and they have a telescopic arm or something. I would imagine that a, an increasing retail environment, uh, people getting out of quarantine um, uh, and shopping more and so on, probably also is really good for your business. Yeah, I think the, the telehandler market is a good market. Um, there's a couple of things that are driving the telehandler market that are a little, that are maybe a little different than what you might expect. Number one is residential construction. Yeah. Uh, telehandlers are a, increasingly seen as a more productive way to move materials around residential construction sites. Um, the other thing that's driving it is agriculture. Telehandlers are seen as a more productive method to move materials around in an agricultural setting uh, versus, say, a, a skid steer type product. So that's helping drive demand for telehandlers. Those are probably the two primary skid steer demand for, drivers right now. For, for our listeners, is, are, are those those sort of bulldozer-like devices where you can yeah, control the left right. side versus the right side and right. often have rubber tracks and can operate on lighter surfaces than just concrete or things you're willing to crunch? Right. Which, which right. is, isn't in the manual. The word crunch is not in the manual 
for a skin secure <laughs> device. But uh, yes. Um, so uh, I want to turn to defense. We only have so much time and, and I'm so interested. The defense business for you, a third of your business. First of all, it took a big jump uh, two years ago um, uh, from 2019 to 2021, where it went from being about, you know, 20% of your business to about 35% of your business. What what was that increase? Was that the reclassification of the firefighting equipment from something else to defense? Or was no, that something I think, else? Well, I think that was primarily because the access business came down so much and the defense business was continuing to go up with the JLTV, the Joint Light Tactical Wheel Vehicle production continuing to go up um, is, is why you the main reason you would have seen that shift. Um, the defense business today, $2.5 billion business um, for us, but a great business from a technological standpoint, especially from an incubator of technology for us as a corporation. How we so? get a lot of benefit from the technologies that we develop in our defense business, and then we can apply them to other commercial segments. Such as? Um, such as autonomous operations, such as electrification. We started doing electrification in the defense industry 20 years ago, uh, which is why you see us come out when, with the ability to electrify the postal fleet. Um, oh. we, why we came out with the first ever electric JLTV, EJLTV. Um, we, we did it in the past. It was always a very discreet program because you needed the performance of electrification, but the economics were such that you couldn't apply it to a wide number of use cases. Now we're seeing an environment where the economics are in play, as well as the, per the performance of electric, as well as the, um, uh, the environmental benefits of electric. And you've got all three coming together and we're seeing a surge in the application of electrification. Well, we've been doing electrification for 20 years, as I mentioned. So it gives us the ability to apply it to um, places like our, our first Pierce Volterra electric fire truck, which we released. The, the first electric airport re uh, rescue and firefighting vehicle, which we just released. It, it allows us to apply those technologies that have been developed in defense across um, other segments and, and really get a lot of benefit from that. That's really interesting. Why, why was defense so interested in electric? I, I mean, uh, recently the Defense Department has acknowledged the defense risk posed by climate change, but that's yeah. recent. What, why yeah. 20 years ago was defense so interested in electric? Well, there's a lot of performance enhancements that you get out of electric. I mean, you get much better acceleration performance yeah. from an electrified product. Um, you, you know, you get uh, uh, benefits from... Um, and noise, vibration, and harshness are much better. So it depends on the specific use case. You know, there's a lot of different use cases in the Department of Defense. Sure. Sometimes you just need a specific performance benefit, um, uh, and, and it has nothing to do with economic benefit. It's pure performance benefit that they want to apply. All right, so here's a story. So back in the days when I was a hedge fund analyst, there was a company that we were short uh, that was later um, – it came out was a big accounting fraud um, and they were doing anything they could to boost the stock and including lying about their numbers. Uh, the company got absorbed by private equity, private equity firm found out about it. And these guys and some people ended up in jail, which rarely happens in corporate fraud, right. public company, corporate fraud. The one of the things that happened to me, it's all about me uh, during this was they came out with a press release announcing this company that had 200 million in annual revenues, $150 million defense department contract that they couldn't talk about because it was top secret. You needed clearance to know about it. 
But it turns out it was an IDIQ contract, which they didn't put into the release. And I had to go and find when I found the government records when the contract itself was actually published. IDIQ uh, is just like your postal contract, which is not to say in any way that it's fraudulent, yeah. but that it's indefinite quantity uh, and, or, you know, I, I what is it? Indefinite uh, period, indefinite quantity. Um, so you don't know how big the orders are going to be. Right. And so you guys were very clear about that and put that all into all of your, uh, it just reminded me of my days of, of short that stock back in 2005 or something. Um, but uh, your IDIQ contract with the Postal Service uh, will allow you to make some postal vehicles. There was a great controversy at the time where uh, makers of electric vehicles said, hey, this shouldn't go to a defense contractor. This should These should be electric vehicles. We have a chance to really clean up the environment uh, for a generation of postal vehicles. Um, talk to me, I want to talk to you both about the size of what the contract is and what it could be. And also about that issue about electrification and the environment yeah. as it relates to these vehicles, which will which will serve an important legacy for the Postal Service. So first, yeah. why don't we start with the latter first? The, the, the size of the contract? So, oh, no, let's talk about the electrification issue. And, oh, and, so and the electrification. Be electric so so I, I, I'm always amused by some of the quote-unquote electrification companies that say it should go to an electrification company because right. usually those are startup companies most of which have not made very many products, if any. Right. Um, and I, I'm amused by it because we have infinitely more electrification experience and capability and engineering know-how than any one of those companies that might have complained about this. Uh, we are an electrification company. I mean, we've actually been doing it for a long time. So for an electrification company to say, a quote-unquote electrification company to say that Oshkosh shouldn't get the contract is, is just nonsense because we have more capability than, than the companies that are complaining about it. Um, and, and, and demonstrate it over time. And I, and I think that that's, I, I'm amazed at the, the, the valuations in the market that assume competence. Right. Have these investors ever worked anywhere? People are incompetent. Yes. It happens everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you you know, we've all seen some of the examples of of what's going on. You've got some of these startup companies literally doing product demonstrations where the product rolls downhill uh, to make it look like it's actually working uh, when, when in fact it's just rolling down a hill. I mean, it's literally gotten to that level. And, and, and how does that make you feel as someone who's getting criticized for not doing electrification? Well, it's infuriating, of course, but we just keep doing what we're doing. And um, we won the postal contract because we clearly had the absolute best solution. You know, and our solution wasn't just that we were electrifying the fleet. Our solution also gave, you know, we, what we do is we study the person that's using the vehicle in this case, the postal carrier. And we studied the postal carrier, just like we study a soldier or a firefighter or somebody who's working at height. We studied what they do every day. We, and we designed the vehicle to provide maximum productivity for that postal carrier. There's all sorts of technology built into that vehicle that makes it infinitely more safe than the currently current vehicle that's being used. That makes it easier to use for the postal carrier. Uh, that provides little comforts that they don't have today. But it's also, we give them the opportunity to electrify the fleet over time. And, and that's uh, uh, a, a design that's one design that can either be outfitted with an internal combustion, low emission engine, 
or a fully electrified zero emission engine, whatever the Postal Service can afford at the pace that they want to electrify their fleet. And they can um, swap it. And that was very innovative. Filings. Nobody else came up with a solution like that. And, and that's why we won the contract. And in, you, in your financial filing, say you can swap it too. The, the engine could be swapped out right. if yeah. it's not electric. Uh, is, yeah. is, that a, is that a thing? Is that real? Yes, absolutely. You know, now it's, now it's hard to do that with an existing internal combustion product. But when you design it from scratch and design that the power can be interchangeable, um, then you can do it. And that's what we did. So if they can, if they can afford to do, say, 10% electric from year one, but then they want to start increasing the electric vehicle penetration from year three or four, we can swap out the uh, propulsion system to electric without having to replace the entire vehicle. It makes it much more economically feasible for the Postal Service to electrify the fleet over time. Uh, you, your financial filings say that the contract allowed you to per, to allowed the Postal Service to purchase between 50,000 and 165,000 yep. units over yep. 10 years. Right. Does that mean they have to buy 50? Yes, it means they will at least buy 50. They okay. are they are they are locked into buying 50,000, but I will tell you uh, Corey, they will buy a lot more than 50,000 units and why am I so confident in saying that? Because they need a lot more than 50,000 units. They need at least 165,000 units and they probably need a lot more than that. This is the largest fleet of vehicles in the United States might be the largest fleet of vehicles in the world. And it is obsolete. Uh, it is costing the Postal Service a fortune to maintain these the vehicles that are on the road today. They're dangerous because they are so old and, and um, 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 they don't have modern systems on them. So the Postal Service needs a lot more than 50,000 units. But whenever they do a contract, they always put a floor in place uh, because that gives us a guarantee when we tool up our manufacturing plant that we have enough to get to mass production quantities. Um, that's why they do that. Indeed. And, and uh, again, $482 million just for engineering to, and tooling to get to build out the factory and design the product. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Um, so when are we going to see these things roll off the line? So we'll see these roll off the line in um, about a year and a half, in October of 2023. The first people in our communities will start to see these new vehicles delivering uh, mail and delivering e-commerce packages. These, these vehicles are set up to deliver modern mail. Modern mail is all yeah. about package delivery as opposed to letter delivery. So it's all about e-commerce and it's all about uh, delivering those, uh, those e-commerce packages. And where are they going to be made? They're going to be made in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Interesting. Yeah. And you guys have had a lot of production in Pennsylvania as well as Wisconsin. Uh, John, we're glad to have you join us uh, from uh, Wisconsin. Brave of you to be there with so many other choices <laughs> during the course. Brave of you to be there during the course of the, yeah. the winter. Um, uh, and thank you for your time. We do appreciate it. Thank you, Corey. Pleasure to be with you today. All right. Coming up with the drill, we're going to have one more number that tells us a whole lot about Oshkosh when the drill down continues with the drill down bite. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot -E com. And maybe you're feeling a little bit out of it. Maybe something's just off. Could be because you missed an episode of The Drill Down. Let me help you out. 
click the subscribe button, regardless of the platform you prefer to listen to, click that subscribe button, follow us, and you'll catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac, can I do two bites? Why not? Yeah. I want to do two bites. Yeah. I wanted to wait for that. So, so, uh, because one gives context to the other. So, you know, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about how um, uh, highly priced tech stocks like Open Door Technologies are trading, you know, at at very high valuations and whatever, you know, stock down Mm -hmm. quite a bit, but shrinking. Well, well, here's here's your bite for this company. Here's one. The growth rate for this company, the revenue growth rate year over year. So fiscal year, all the everything the annualized is is, you know, the quarterly ups and downs are taken out. The fiscal the quarterly sorry, the annual growth rate year over year, twenty-two percent for this business. Wow. So you're wow. an open door, supposedly a tech company growing at you know, at, at 1%, negative 1% shrinking. And then you got this thing just growing fantastically. Um, and then the other number is the growth rate of their backlog. So they had a five, $400.6 billion backlog at the end of 2020, fiscal year 2020, which is September for them. Their backlog is now uh, up, here's that number, 76% year over year. Wow. So $8 billion in the backlog. So that not only are they growing at a really strong rate, 23%, mm-hmm. they've also got a backlog, which is sort of guaranteed growth in the future. Right. Fully guaranteed, but certainly um, uh, most likely to happen. That backlog up 76% year over year. This is a fast-growing, profitable business. And again, that that postal contract is so interesting. There's been so much criticism in the mainstream business press about the notion that these guys can't possibly switch from a, from a gas-powered vehicle to an electric vehicle. And here you have a company that's, you know, the CEO, you heard him saying, not only do we, uh, can we switch from gas to electric if our customer wants to do that, including on existing vehicles, we've been doing electric for a long time. Right. Sorry, uh, all you tech people who think that Tesla invented electric. It's not the case. All right, you've been listening to The Drill Down. We do appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson, Isaac Webster. Is our executive producer Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. Why do I say extraordinaire? Listen to this thing; it sounds good. Even if our words are stupid, the sound quality is pretty decent. Thank you, Ben. Drilled under production of the Business Podcast Network.